Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, editorial director of The Fader. Arlo Parks wrote her debut album, Collapsed in Sunbeams, about her teenage years growing up in London, with references to Radiohead and Jai Paul, buried among stories of comforting troubled friends and her own romantic misadventures. Parks' candid writing style and pillow-soft voice won her critical acclaim. The album was awarded the prestigious Mercury Prize in 2021, and it sent her around the world, including for support slots with Harry Styles and Billie Eilish. Parks' follow-up, My Soft Machine, arrives this week and is much more worldly, with time spent in Tokyo and California, where she moved last year, informing her tactile and conversational lyrics. It's an album that pulls the listener in close and whispers its story softly. Among them are tales of relationships that veer from effortless and unconditional to ugly and transactional. Parks' voice, coolly observational with a unique turn of phrase, ties it all together. The same globetrotting that helped inform My Soft Machine also brought on a reckoning for Parks. In September 2022, she pulled out of a number of live shows amid a hectic period of touring, citing debilitating mental health concerns. The comment section of the post in which she announced that is filled with fellow musicians, including Claro and Romy Madley Croft of the XX, sharing their love and empathizing with her situation. Last month, the Faders' David Renshaw caught up with Parks to discuss the many ways her life has changed since Collapsed in Sunbeams, the movies that helped inspire My Soft Machine, and how she hopes to avoid another burnout. I was curious if you could kind of fill me in a little bit on the timeline of the period that the album is kind of written through. I understand it's quite a specific period of your life. Yeah, so the first demos were made for the record, which were Ghost and Room. I made those actually before Collapse in Sunbeams came out. They were my little kind of foray into making new music in that limbo between finishing a record and putting it out. Then the rest of the music was kind of dotted throughout 2022. In January, I was in with Paul and we had this incredible week where we did Blades, Weightless and Purple Face. And then I spent time in LA, kind of in between tours with Ramil and Ariel and everyone. And I had these little kind of pools of time in between playing shows where I would just kind of collect everything that I was feeling and all the little kind of bits of raw material that I was getting from films and books and my diary. And then I would kind of unload those in those little pools of time that I had in between playing shows and being out in the world. One of the things that I understand you do when you're on on the road on tour is to uh, kind of visit countries and dig into subculture a little bit and learn about the places that you were spending time. And obviously that's tricky when you've got shows and you've got to move on. 
but I was wondering if there was any countries that inspired my soft machine and what you pulled from from those locations. Definitely. So I spent some time in Japan, in Tokyo. We were in the city, but we also had the opportunity to kind of go out of the city and explore nature a little bit. But I went to a lot of little record shops in Japan and I was kind of exploring a lot of the ambient music that they have there. And I didn't realize that there was this really kind of rich punk scene and I got to like hang out in some of the queer bars and meet some of the drag queens and thinking about the richness in that culture and also like just being in a completely different part of the world was so inspiring like being immersed in a culture that was so different from what I was used to being able to like walk around in the parks and learn a lot about the fashion and the way that they approach food and ritual that was really inspiring to me And then also spending time in America, you know, like being in Seattle and thinking about Sub Pop, thinking about Nirvana and Mudhoney and also like some of the more current bands that they've signed, I guess, like Wiseblood, Father John Misty, spending time in Chicago and thinking about like the birth of, of house music and the dance culture there, being in Berlin, thinking a lot about techno and clubs like Berghain and the way that that music makes people move. So there were so many different corners of the world that inspired me. And then of course, being in California, you know, thinking about the songwriters in Laurel Canyon, like listening to Joni Mitchell whilst driving around in that part of the city and thinking about the rich history of Hollywood and filmmaking and script writing and art that there is in that city. And also just being among a lot of the people who are really pushing music forward and spending time in the nature as well, spending time in the desert, spending time in the mountains, reading Joan Didion whilst in California. Like, I feel like each place that I went to, I was kind of doing a little bit of, of digging. And does the album feel bigger to you as a result, as opposed to the debut, which is obviously from your kind of teenage years in growing up in London? Yeah, definitely. You know, it, it feels bigger also in the way that I was very much out in the world. For the first record, it was quite an insular process. I was in London, it was during the pandemic. I was kind of going back into the past in order to find things to write about, essentially. Like thinking about those formative years, thinking about those parties, thinking about those relationships, those conversations, those summers spent in the park, thinking about like coming of age. And then with this record, especially as I was looking more inwards and less from a kind of character perspective. And I was actually in the room with people like playing drums, banging on synths, resetting tape machines, having the ability to experiment and play and be a student of other people's processes. And also making the decision to be a lot more involved in the production and bringing in references that I've always loved, but haven't quite yet put into my music. So it definitely feels a lot bigger and I'm very much telling my truth, I think, rather than the truth that I'm observing in others. So, yeah, it feels it feels bigger. It feels different, you know. I'm glad you mentioned the production there because obviously you've worked with some great producers on this album, but also you've put your own production in there for the first time, I believe. Could you talk me a little bit through your process of becoming a producer and what you want to bring to your own music from the production side? Yeah, so I kind of started off as a producer just because I didn't really know how else to make music like I was under the naive impression that everyone who makes music 
produces and writes it themselves, which was kind of a good way to to start off in music because I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to have to teach myself. So I was on YouTube figuring out GarageBand, understanding what EQing meant, but I didn't really have that much technique, which actually served me well because, for example, I didn't know that you could comp a vocal, that you could like pick different bits from takes and make a new take. So I was like, well, I have to sing the song perfectly from start to finish. And then when I was trying to do doubles of a vocal take, I'd be like, well, I have to do it perfectly because I don't know how to change it afterwards. So it meant that like I had these interesting little ways of getting around, like not having very many resources that I then applied to making this record. And I still have the same setup that I always did. You know, like most of the plugins that I have are free plugins. I've just got my my little interface and my little MIDI keyboard, my guitar and my mic that I kind of usually take around with me. So the resources were kind of the same as they were when I was a teenager. And that was inspiring because it was like, how much can I make with this? Thinking about, you know, Steve Lacey producing on his iPhone. Like, I think there's something about having quite a minimal setup that allows you to be truly creative and I think in general with the production of the record I wanted it to be maybe just have a little bit more contrast you know I think with Collapse in Some Memes there was this kind of warm mid-tempo minimalism with this album I wanted there to be a sense of urgency you know I wanted the abrasiveness of those guitars in devotion like I wanted that kind of crescendoing middle A in room that like reminded me of exit music for a film or something like I think I wanted there to be more ebbs and flows while still retaining that sense of warmth so that was kind of my ethos going into the production of the album. Weightless is the first song that we heard from the album it's written about a relationship that you describe in these quite attritional terms almost like the the love was being rationed out in this relationship. I was wondering if you could kind of tell me a little bit about the, the backdrop to that song, the story behind it and, and where it came from. Yeah, so in terms of like the approach to the song in general, I was reading a lot of Annie or no books and thinking about like the sparsity with which she writes. She very much writes in quite like a factual, unsentimental way with these little glimmers of poetry dotted within the writing. And it inspired me to kind of write it in that very brutally honest way you know like I'm keeping wool over my eyes like watching like your deltoid flex as you cough on the phone like actually thinking about what happened and talking about what happened in a way that felt very vulnerable because it wasn't kind of veiled behind poetry and fragments and and hiding behind poetry it was very much real and I guess the topic of the song is very much about, it's not necessarily romantic. It could be about a parent or a friend or just somebody that you're very close to. And that sense of being tethered to someone who is quite avoidant and you have this kind of fantasy built up in your mind that you're the only person that can fix them and that you're somehow the exception to their pattern and kind of slowly figuring out that, you have to kind of disentangle yourself from this relationship in order to survive, in order to get back to your happiness and to your center.
impurities kind of feels like the opposite of that. It's about an abundance of love and affection. Is that a journey you've kind of gone on between the two albums from where you were at when Collapse of Sunbeams was made to now with My Self Machine, where you're removing yourself from situations like Weightless and seeking out the kind of impurities people and put them in your life? Rather than being a, a journey between Collapse in Sunbeams and My Self Machine, I feel like that's kind of a lifelong journey. Like, I feel like there's never really a point that we reach where we have perfect, healthy balance in terms of every single relationship in our lives. It's more of following the journey towards healing and the ebbs and flows. And I think, honestly, the main difference is that because I kind of was practicing my craft, I was writing every day and I suddenly felt able to capture the quality of joy. Not that I wasn't feeling joy before, but that I wasn't quite sure how to put it into words. It just felt like something that flooded in and out of my life and that I wasn't really able to bottle with this record you know, and, and the trust that I felt when it came to my collaborators, I was really able to bottle that feeling, to bottle the feeling of joy and feeling held, feeling special, feeling radiant, feeling like what I have to say is important and, and people that make you feel good and that make you feel like you can move past things that you thought would be permanent obstacles. So it's definitely like, I'm just so glad that there are those moments of joy in this record. When you embrace all my impurities When you embrace all my impurities When you embrace all my impurities And I feel clean again Oh, the lip you threw me that was so intense That it was physical So the album title, My Self Machine, is named after a quote from the souvenir of the movie. One of the characters expresses the appeal of film and cinema by saying, we don't want to see life as it's played out. We want to see life as it is experienced in this soft machine. I was curious if you kind of felt that music is a soft machine too, and if that's the case, whether there is a difference between making it and listening to it. That's interesting. I, I guess I always kind of viewed the soft machine as like the body and as the like lens through which life is is filtered through but I do think that music is a soft machine in terms of it being a vessel to kind of carry ideas and especially my music it's a place where I put the softest parts of myself almost like on a little raft and kind of push it out into the ocean and I think personally there is a difference between listening to music and making it. Like, I think that when I listen to music, when I listen to my favorite songs, I feel like I can just completely enjoy it purely and lose myself in the words and in the tone. But when I'm making music, it feels more like I'm just like I'm building a, a structure. Like I have this moment of inspiration and I can like picture like the architecture of the house. I can picture what color rug I want in it. I can picture like how many doors there are and how it feels to like walk from the kitchen to the hallway. But I have to actually sit down and construct this thing. It, it's a lot more effortful than me sitting down and listening to either or by Elliot Smith. <laughs> it's, it's very much more of like a, an arduous process. But, but the joy that I feel in doing that is like, I don't know, it's the best feeling in the world to me. Are there any other kind of 
movie references or influences on the record. I know that there's kind of a nod to Gus Van Sant and Juliette Binoche on impurities, for example. Yeah, I mean, especially, I mean, Gus Van Sant, I was actually reading his his book. There's this book that was written that kind of like tracks his creative journey, just like from the very first movie that he directed kind of all the way through. And I guess this isn't a film in itself. It's more, you know, about the director, but even tracing his journey and the fact that he's had such a long career that, you know, has had moments of massive commercial success when you think about, you know, something uh, like Goodwill Hunting. But then there are moments where he goes into like, I don't know, making a film like Jerry, for example, which is very much like his own personal creative venture. And it's like quite abstract, these two best friends in the desert. And and I think for me, it was really inspiring to be like, okay, if I want to make music and I want to do it for a long time, all I can do is trust the instinct that I have now. And naturally people are going to like certain albums that I make more or less than others. And that's just kind of how it's going to be. And that was really inspiring to me. But in terms of specific films, I loved watching Parallel Mothers and Talk to Her, the Almodovar movies. I loved watching the Lanthimos movies again, Dogtooth, Killing the Sacred Deer. I loved watching uh, also the short film. I think it's La Vos Humana. I don't know what it is in English, but that uh, short film with Tilda Swinton where she's going through this breakup in this really like vibrant, surreal home. And she's kind of waiting and waiting for, for this person who's left her life. Um, but yeah, I always have gravitated towards films that feel like they're just about humans and how valuable they are and how how capable of, of beautiful things and terrible things they are. So I feel like that bleeds into all the, the films that I've referenced. One of the things that I've read you kind of say you learned through the process of making Myself Machine is a, a degree of patience. I wondered if you could kind of elaborate on that and tell me why, basically, why, why, why did you need to be patient making this album? I think because of the ambition of the record and the fact that I wanted to really craft something I wanted to sculpt something rather than just like trusting an impulse and kind of leaving it as that I wanted to really craft a a landscape I wanted to build a world and a lot of that is about you know writing a song like I usually pretty much always have the lyrics and the melody but sometimes it's only you know over a piano and drums and you have to be patient when you think about the treatment of the music. Like you have to let it reveal itself to you slowly, like what it's meant to be in its final form. And I think I just had to learn patience. Like some things do just take time and you can't force it. And and when it comes to figuring out like what a song needs to be, sometimes you do just have to step away. And when you care about something a lot, it's really hard to do that. Like it's really hard to just leave something alone and trust the process. But that's something that I felt like I had to learn. Off the back of Collapsing Sunbeam, you were playing a lot. You were touring a lot. Specifically, you were doing some quite big shows, support slots for the likes of Harry Styles, Billie Eilish, Florence and the Machine, these kind of arena stadium dates. Does the scale of those venues make its way into the thinking about new music? You wouldn't have written the first album thinking this needs to fill a stadium, but now that must at least cross your mind. I think that it's less about filling a stadium, but it's more about like, if in a moment I'm like, okay, I want to make something that's going to make people dance. And I almost like picture how certain sounds would make people move and be like, okay, if I were in a crowd, what would make me dance? 
Like if I were fan, how would this nasan make me feel? How would this chorus make me feel? Does it feel euphoric? Does it feel like it should actually drop in pace? Is that more intense? Like almost me thinking from the perspective of a fan. But I do think, you know, when it comes to quote unquote big songs, I feel like they're never made by thinking, okay, I'm going to make a big song. I'm going to make a stadium anthem. Like that's never going to make anything that's particularly stadium worthy. Um, so I tried to shy away from making something that I felt everyone would like. You talk about that need to, or desire to kind of change dynamics and throw different textures into the new album. And one of the tracks that really feels like you achieved that is Blades. Talking for hours on the gravel, letting our backs burn. Walking to boxes, linking pinkies, wearing matching pearls. And now I'm struggling, I'm choking up without the You made that with Paul Epworth, and I wondered if you could talk me through some of the reference points that you had between the two of you while you were making that song. Yeah, so as always with, with Paul, it's like we'll be listening to music, and then suddenly, I don't even know how it happens, we're just like suddenly like banging on synths and all this stuff's happening, and then we're just like, done! Um, but when I think about like the specific references, I think about Kate Trinada, especially his 99.9% album, songs like Got It Good, songs like Wait Off, songs like Glowed Up. I think about this song called Shimmer by Fabiana Palladino, which is like part of the Paul Institute. She's on the Paul Institute record label that J. Paul and AK have. And I was also thinking about like unconventional disco music, like Come Away With ESG by ESG or like you know, Arthur Russell's loose joint stuff. I was like, how can I make something that's going to make people dance, but still feels a little bit off kilter? So that was kind of the, the, the aim with that one. Were there any other kind of experiments that maybe didn't quite reach full fruition, but, you know, sounds that you were trying or, or worlds that you kind of dipped your toe into? I was curious as to how experimental you were getting during the making of this album. Yeah, no, like I was kind of going in all directions. Like I made things that felt completely ambient. I made things that felt kind of like garagey or like dance music. I made like a lot of kind of acoustic, like more folky music because I, I felt like I almost just had to be consistent in trying. Like I had to keep trying things and to kind of like get myself away from the fear of creating something that wasn't good because that's not really the point. You know, it's just about trying and trying and trying. My friend described it as like, you know, those little like lightning conductors at the top of like tall buildings. And it's like you go and you just like put your little thing up and sometimes lightning doesn't strike or sometimes lightning strikes in the wrong way. But then sometimes it's perfect and you just have to keep trying every day. So that was very much my my approach with, with this record. You say you had to kind of get over that fear of... Uh failure essentially or not something not quite working was that something initially that you were dealing with that kind of uh, being scared to get going almost I don't know if I was ever scared to get going just because making music is so like natural to me it's so intuitive but I think that 
every time you make a good song, there is that fear that that's the last good song you'll ever make. I think that's just the kind of constant fear. But it's always exciting to to start and, and also be like, this is a blank slate. Like I can actually make anything. There's so something so freeing in that and not feeling like there's some kind of box or expectation that I had to slot into. I think if I felt that maybe it would have been difficult to start, but I didn't feel that at all. So there was almost this kind of like teenage excitement. Like I was just with all my friends in a garage, like just piecing stuff together and being in some like massive weird band or something. That's kind of how it felt. And is there a song on the album that feels particularly pivotal to the overall uh, feeling of the album, like a cornerstone track? Is it, you know, that kind of real, this is the one moment? I think there are a couple for different reasons. The one that comes to mind is Devotion, just because it's a song that kind of happened by accident and that made me feel like, okay, there are really no bounds to what this record can be. Like, I can make something heavier, I can make something that honors my love of like songs like Debaser by the Pixies or the Breeders or Smashing Pumpkins or Deftones, like I can bring that into my music. And that for me just kind of blitzed any kind of sense that I thought I had of the record and was just like completely freeing. Yeah, I, I, I can definitely hear that kind of um, influence coming through on that on that song in particular. You, you have this kind of almost encyclopedic knowledge of music. It feels like, I can't, you know, I can't recall song titles in the way you can um, so clearly. Do you have any musical blind spots? Do you have like a list of things that you're eventually going to check out but you haven't quite got to yet? Oh, musical blind spots. That's really interesting. There's definitely an era of music that I have no idea about. I Like some people will reference it. I think it's like 2007 to like 2012 or like something like that where I'm just like I people will reference things and I have absolutely no clue but in terms of albums I haven't actually okay I'm a massive Sophie Stevens fan but I've never listened to Illinois that like extremely long one that was supposed to be like a song for every state and it's like 22 songs long I've never listened to that album I've literally only listened to one but I'm obsessed with it so I claim myself as a fan I love Grouper, but I've only listened to that Inca All record and some singles. So I really want to listen to Dragging a Dead Deer Up a Hill. That's one of the ones I've been thinking about. I guess these are all, I'm thinking of like, I'm trying to think of like massive albums that I've probably missed. I haven't ever listened to a Dolly Parton album. I think that's important. I think I should listen to like her self-titled one. So those, those are the three. I feel like there are millions, but every time I go into a record shop, I'm like, I know nothing. So I'm sure there are millions. In September of last year, you kind of spoke very openly about dealing with exhaustion and the demands of life on the road. You stepped back from performing live for a period of time. I, I think you've kind of covered that quite extensively in recent times. But what I was curious is that now that you're gearing up to tour this new album, are you putting steps in place to ensure that that doesn't happen again? Yeah, no, definitely. I think that something that I really learned about last year was the fact that the pacing of self-care has to be consistent and in small ways rather than it being, you know, powering through for months and months and then having a big crash at the end. Like, I think I've really started to rethink how often and in what ways I take care of myself. Like I try and do something small most days. Like I'll try and like go out for a little walk today and put on a podcast 
you know, I'll try and like make time for dinner with a friend, like before a really big show, or I'll try and like put in a little holiday for a couple of days with my partner. Like, I think a lot of it is about having these little moments where you're taking care of yourself regularly that kind of allow me to kind of balance the like hectic life that I live. Is there any recent examples of those things that you put in that you particularly enjoyed and found restorative? Yeah, definitely. Just the other day, I went to see this indie film called Sick of Myself at the Curzon Cinema in Hoxton with my friend Daniel. And we just like had a coffee, walked down from Dawson, just like had a lovely chat and then watched this film at the cinema, which was really nice. When I was in LA, I went to the Korean spa and I love the Korean spa. <laughs> um, I went to, as soon as I got in from LA, I went to the Brick Lane bookshop and I just bought five books that I'm really excited about digging into. I started reading scripts, like getting really ex excited about reading the scripts of my favorite movies and kind of seeing how the dialogue translated to the screen. So I've been putting like an hour or so aside most days to, to dig into those. So yeah, lots of nice little bits. Do you harbor any ambitions to write a script yourself at any point? Yeah, I would like to. Like I really, really would like to. I guess my main thing about like anything that I throw myself into is that I need to be like completely committed to doing it and like have enough creative space to do it. But I really want to one day. The same with like writing a novel. I'd love to do that, but I feel like I'd really need to like hole up somewhere in upstate New York with a typewriter and like go full full writer mode, like full feral writer mode. That's what that's what I need to do. To return to the subject of touring briefly, um, you obviously reached a point where it was no longer sustainable. You'd kind of been gigging and gigging and it was this kind of relentless run of dates that left you quite exhausted. We've seen this with other artists who've kind of taken similar steps to, to protect themselves and this kind of thing. I was curious among your peers, the other artists that you know, people you've met along the way is this something you kind of talk about between yourselves is there this kind of sense of like this isn't sustainable I feel like there's definitely a support system among artists in terms of like checking in with one another and like if somebody put post tour dates it's like oh like this looks like a lot like how are you feeling about this and like there is this sense of like everyone does take care of one another which is really really nice and I feel like even just having this like big pool of wisdom where it's like okay I'm like struggling to like eat right on tour I'm struggling to sleep you know this is making me feel anxious and everyone is kind of able to talk to one another about it which is really nice. Have you found that you're now able to pass on some of that advice to newer artists or people who are kind of fresher than you are having done a full album and on to the second you know what I mean like you're you're no longer the newbie you're the you're the next bring up is that something that's changed for you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, even two years ago, like, I hadn't really toured very much at all. So I was definitely not in the position to be giving any advice. But I feel like now, especially, you know, having been through like, an album cycle, and, and the side of it that's like, doing promo and talking about a record and being perceived in that way, the side of it that's also like, you know, becoming like a public facing person and reckoning with that. And also the side of it that's touring, I do feel like I've kind of lived a lot of life in the last two years. And I think it's really important to share what you've learned as well and like make sure that 
somebody else has an easier time of it and just be there to, to talk really absolutely and and one of the people who is on the album who i also know is a friend of yours and a person you've collaborated with before is phoebe bridges she appears on the song pegasus what was it about that song in particular that made you think she she would be great on it i think that song in particular there's a sense of like melancholy but with like a tinge of sweetness and i feel like she has such a wonderful command over her voice that she would be able to kind of elevate what i had already written and just fit into the world really magically uh, and i think a lot of her music has this really kind of personal sense of storytelling it's very detail oriented you know it's very like vivid and i'm just like a massive fan of her work i've never had a feature on my record and I, I told myself that if I ever did, it would have to be something that felt really organic and natural. And I think we really achieved that with, with this collaboration. I was thinking, obviously, she's just released the Boy Genius album with Lucy Dacus and Julian Baker. If there was to be a, a UK Boy Genius, and I were to put you as one of the three, who else would you like to see involved in that group? Oh, a UK Boy Genius. That's interesting. So I would say it would be Green from Fontaine's DC, Bieber Doobie and me. And I think we would make sick music. I think it'd be great. When I think when I think of your music and, and you as an artist, I think first and foremost as the lyrics. I think there's a, like such a strong sense of place and a very evocative use of language that you employ in in your in your music. I was curious if there's any lyrics or lines from the album, not favourites, because I'm sure you maybe don't, maybe wouldn't be as gauche to have a favorite line from your album, but like song, like lines that are rustling around in your head at the moment, so things that stand out as, you know, particularly strong or, you know, you really nailed what you were trying to say with that one. The lyric that I'm probably the most proud of is probably like the pre-chorus from Purple Phase, I think, because it's like, I just want to see her iridescent charming cats down from trees moogler aviators hiding eyes that laugh when concealed i like those two together and just the image of like someone's eyes laughing behind their sunglasses and like someone having like the power to be trusted by animals and like just the good at the center of a person that's being clouded by by addiction and mental health problems i feel like it captures it well and i like the way that the yeah that the rhymes kind of weave in and out of one another. I like it. Collapsing Sunbeams was so successful. It, it kind of won the Mercury Prize, pro propels you onto this platform that I'm sure maybe you never imagined was possible. Outside of the commercial and numbers, which obviously are not interesting or, or worth kind of getting bogged down in, what does success for this new album look like to you? I guess I just want to make something that like provides relief. 
like I remember putting out Black Dog and having this really strong sense that I put out something that was helping people and something that people were like carrying through their lives and that kind of was almost like a time capsule for a certain point in in their journey and I guess it would be that I guess it would be something that kind of cements the fact that I am able to make music and be creative for my job for for the rest of my life I want to feel that certainty when it comes to that hopefully it's something that also like I don't know, allows me to collaborate with people who who I've always dreamt of collaborating with, just like creating a little ripple effect. Yeah, I feel like my my uh, goalposts for this record are kind of like nebulous. Like I just want to know that I can just make songs and like write my little scripts and just be a little hermit and, and make good art that people can hold on to. That's kind of what I want really. That was Arlo Parks talking to The Fader's David Renshaw. Arlo Parks' new album, My Soft Machine, is out this Friday, May 26, via Transgressive Records. The Fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Raphael Helfer. We'd like to thank Loughton Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com and we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music if you enjoyed today's episode we'd appreciate if you left a 5 star rating and review and keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news interviews and essays we'll be back soon with another episode of The Fader Interview goodbye until then